People today reject Jesus and the claims of the gospel for lots of reasons. Some, I think, use intellectual questions as kind of a smokescreen to hide the deeper, more uh, authentic issues that are at play. So think of it this way, 2,000 years later, anybody can say, what about this, what about this, what about this, what about this? But for those of us that believe, it should be comforting that there were some very powerful people that had everything to gain by disproving the claims of the gospel 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but they could not do it. That's what we want to talk about today. If you have a Bible, turn with us to Acts chapter 25. If you're new with us, we're working our way through the book of Acts. Last week, Ryan took us through the trial with Festus, which is the fourth of the five trials. At the end of that, Paul makes his appeal to Rome, and Festus grants that, but he's still struggling with what the charge is. So he invites help from King Agrippa, and that's where we pick up the story this morning. Verse 23. So on the next day when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium, accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me both at Jerusalem and here loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. And since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me to send a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. So just a couple things as we begin. So this is the fifth of five trials. Remember, Luke is the author of the book of Acts. He's also the author of the Gospel of Luke. And both volumes are for Theophilus, a uh, Roman official. So if you stop and think about, Luke is seeking to present the historical credibility of the message of the gospel to Theophilus. So this fifth trial is by far the most thorough and the most comprehensive. So in each of these trials, Luke is just recording select detail. He's certainly not recording everything that transpired. But in this fifth and final trial, it's if he's summarizing what we've heard in all five trials and putting it together to present the historical 
credibility of the message of the gospel. So that's the best way to understand what this text is about. Second of all, let's talk about Agrippa. So this is officially King Herod Agrippa II. His father was King Herod Agrippa I. That was the Herod that put uh, James, the Apostle James, to death. He was the Herod that thought he was God. God judged him. He was eaten by worms. So that would have been Drusilla's father. She would have been about six years old at the time. So now this is his son that has succeeded him. So Agrippa, Bernice, and Drusilla are all siblings. One of the conversations in first century culture was what exactly was the relationship between Agrippa and his sister Bernice. There was a lot of speculation. We'll leave that for another day. What's more relevant to our conversation this morning is one of the unique dynamics of Agrippa was that he was considered to be an expert in the Old Testament, in Jewish customs, in their traditions, and in their ways. So this creates opportunity for Paul to talk to him in a way that's different than the conversation with Festus and with Felix. So Luke opens, setting the scene that Agrippa came together with Bernice with great pomp. That word pomp is the Greek word from which we get our English word fantasy. Basically, what Luke wants to do is to create this picture at the beginning of this story because he's then a contrast that a little bit later. So in a situation like this, King Herod would have come out with probably a purple robe, but it would have been trimmed all over with materials that would have been reflective of the sun. Bernice certainly would have been decked out as well. He would have had a crown, and all of this was intended to reflect the sunlight. So when the king comes out at just the right time, the sun hits him, and it's as if he glows, and it gives the impression that he is a godlike figure. You add to that the governor Festus is there. We're also told that the Roman commanders were there. We're told that the prominent men of Caesarea are there. So all of this creates the power of Rome up against one small man. We obviously don't have pictures of the Apostle Paul, but first century historians record him as being small, as being skinny, and as being balding. Literally, the description was very unimpressive. Now, I don't know that I appreciate balding and unimpressive in the same sentence, but that's what it is. So here's the power of Rome up against this small figure, and that's the intent of Rome, to show their power and how insignificant you are by comparison. 
So Festus lays out the problem that the Jews want Paul put to death, but he can't figure out any reasonable charge. Paul, as a Roman citizen, makes his appeal to Rome. Festus has granted it, but he has a very serious problem. You dare not waste Nero's time. If you're going to send someone to Rome, you better have a really good reason for doing so. And at this point, he has none. So he is hoping that Agrippa, with his knowledge of the Jewish people, can help him with this. Chapter 26, verse 1, Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. So stop and think about this. Paul literally was in the process of being beaten to death when he was rescued by the Roman commander. This is now the fifth trial. They have not been able to find any real charge against him, yet he has sat in a prison for two years. So now you have your chance to have your say. If you were granted this moment, what would you say? I'm pretty sure what I would say. But Paul is understanding that God has granted him an amazing opportunity. Anybody that's anybody in Caesarea and the surrounding region is now present in this opportunity. And he has a prime opportunity to share the gospel with them. So he's not going to defend himself. He's not going to complain about how unfair all this is. But rather, it's a defense of the gospel. Verse 2, in regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. This isn't just flattery. Agrippa was considered an expert, which provides Paul a unique opportunity to tell the story. Verse 4, so then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. So notice throughout Paul's defense how many times he talks about the Jews know this is true. There are witnesses. There are people that can testify. He's wanting it understood. This is true. You can't dispute this. Everybody knows this. So he was born in Tarsus. He is a Jew. He moved to Jerusalem. He was trained under Gamaliel, who was the top rabbi of the day. It was the strictest sect of the Pharisees. In other New Testament scriptures, he identifies himself as the Pharisee of all Pharisees, the most Hebrew of all the Hebrews. There's no disputing the fact he is Jewish all the way to the core, and they can't deny this. 
Verse 6, and now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So rather than Paul being a betrayer to the Jews, the argument he's making is I am the most Jewish of all. What he's guilty of is having the audacity to believe that God actually kept his promise. So what he's saying is as a Jewish person, What has given them hope, what's kept them together as a nation through all this stuff that they've been through is it goes all the way back 2,000 years before this to their belief that God made a promise to Abraham that one day through a seed of Abraham would come someone through all the nations of the world would be blessed. He would send a savior. He would send a messiah. And for all these years, the temple, the tabernacle, the feast, all this stuff was all a reminder that God made a promise. And their deep belief was God would keep his promise. That was the very source of their hope. It's very important to understand God did not establish some religion. Or if you're just really religious, you'll feel better. All of it was centered on one thing, a promise. And that promise would be a savior. At the core of that was a very unique Jewish belief. That there would be a resurrection. That there would be life after death. A literal, physical, bodily Resurrection from the dead. And the Jews were unique in their belief that this was true. But it all centered on their belief that God would keep his promise. So if they believe that, why are they so resistant to accept the fact that God actually kept his promise? And if it's all based on their belief of a resurrection from the dead, why are they so determined not to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Verse 9. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them, often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to the foreign cities." So Paul says, at one time, I didn't get it either. I was just like them. I thought what God wanted was for me to be hostile to this movement that followed Jesus of Nazareth. 
So I was throwing these Christians in prison in Jerusalem. When they came before the council, I voted that they be put to death. He goes so far as to say, I even tortured them to try to get them to recant from their belief in the resurrected Jesus. He was enraged and determined to stop this. Again, he identifies, you know this is true. You know this is my story. Verse 12, while so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus, to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? So we've heard this story before. Paul's telling his own testimony. He was on his way to Damascus to do great damage to the Christians. Notice again, he identifies according to the uh, commission by the chief priests. They know this is true. They're the ones that told me to go. Suddenly there's this great light. Wasn't just Paul by himself. Also the witnesses saw it. They fell to the ground and this voice comes from heaven that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now this is the third time we've heard this in the story of Paul. But this is the first time we've heard the added line about, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Whether this is the first time Paul included this detail or simply the first time that Luke records this detail, it's hard to know. This was a very Greek saying, would have been relatively unfamiliar to the Jews. Basically what it means is this. A goad was a long pole. At the end of it was some sort of a metal, long pointy spear end. And it was used to move livestock. So the livestock are ahead of you, and if they aren't moving, you poke them with the goad. If the livestock didn't like it, they kicked back against it. But when they did that, it would just drive the spear point into their flesh. So the Greeks picked up on this and made it a saying that had to do with when you fight the gods. You're just kicking the goads. You're just making it more painful for yourself. So Saul, Saul, why are you doing this? It's just making it all the more painful. And I said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, 
to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So Jesus responds, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. You persecute the church, you're persecuting me. Then immediately he tells Paul to stand up. Now this language is very reminiscent of an Old Testament prophet. If you go back and look at Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, when they encounter God, they fall on their face, but then God tells them to stand up. I'm about to give you your marching orders. So that's exactly what this is. This is your assignment. Your assignment is to testify to both Jews and Gentiles what you, what you have witnessed today, but also more that I'm going to reveal to you. I want you to tell Jews and Gentiles to turn from their ways. Verse 18, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light. It's very familiar New Testament imagery. Although I think we in a 21st century world don't really understand this imagery very well. When it's dark, we flip on a light. We pull out a flashlight. We have a hundred different ways to deal with the darkness. But in an ancient culture, when it was dark, it was really dark. So the difference between life lived in the darkness and life lived in the light was dramatic. Darkness is the idea they don't understand. They don't get it. Light is the truth, is understanding what God has done. Second, it says, from the dominion of Satan to God. Now, this is very interesting to think about because he's talking about Judaism and all the religious activity that defined the Jews. The Jews believed that they were superior to all other people because of their Jewish religion. They were far better than the Greek pagans. But the argument here is if you don't have Jesus, you're part of the dominion of Satan. Whether you're engaged in Judaism or Greek pagan religion, you're part of the dominion of Satan, apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I understand it's very popular today for people to believe that all religions eventually lead to God. But what Jesus just said is if you don't have at the core the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you're part of the dominion of Satan. And only Jesus moves you to the dominion of God. Thirdly, that they receive the forgiveness of sins. 
Think about Paul himself. Paul was a murderer. He killed these Christians. And yet he understands because of what God has done through Jesus the Savior, he offers forgiveness to anyone. And lastly, an inheritance. Certainly here, inheritance is referring to life after death. This is at the core of their belief that there will be a resurrection of the dead. That the life that we all long for is made possible through Jesus. One of the places you get this is in Hebrews chapter 11 where the writer of Hebrews talks about the great heroes of the faith. He talks about Abraham, he talks about Sarah and Isaac and Jacob. But what we're told is they all died believing by faith that there was a better land, a better city, a better place. They all died having never seen it Fulfilled, But with eyes of faith, they were headed to a city whose builder and architect is God. This is the core of their hope. This is the message that Paul was to proclaim. At the end of verse 18, all of it made possible by faith in me. Verse 19, so King Agrippa... I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all of the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So he says to the king, I have not been disobedient to my call. This is what God has asked me to declare to both Jews and Gentiles. That this is what God has done. He has fulfilled his promise. This is the reason why the Jews hate me. Because I am obediently declaring this message of Jesus to both Jews and Gentiles. That's why they want me dead. But through the power of God in him, he has taken his stand. And he has declared that what was uh, predicted by Moses and the prophets has come true. That the Messiah would have to suffer He was crucified, he'd be buried, and then he would rise from the dead in order to fulfill the promise. 
Verse 24, while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Literally, you're insane. Your great learning is driving you mad. Now, a Roman would not understand any of this. They don't understand the Old Testament, the prophets, Moses, the temple, the festivals. So Festus is like, you're crazy. This is why Paul's conversation with Felix and Festus was so different. But Paul responds. Paul says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I utter words of sober truth. Literally, I utter sane truth. It's the antonym to your insane. No, actually, I'm the most sane person in the room. Now think about this. This is 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The historical evidence is overwhelming. They can't dispute or contradict anything Paul has said. So the most reasonable response, the most sane response, is to believe this is true. That's what he just said to Festus. Verse 26, for the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. So he turns and he appeals to Agrippa. King Agrippa, I know you understand this. You being an expert in Moses and the prophets. You being an expert in the Old Testament law. I know that you get this because nothing that I've talked about happened in secret. We're not talking about some myth, mythological story that happened in a cave that no one can prove. He says everything was done in the open. And you know this is true. Now the accused becomes the questioner. King Agrippa, you do believe the prophets, don't you? I know that you do. Now Agrippa has been backed into a corner. Notice the reversal from the power of Rome against this scrawny little guy. And now it's turned all upside down. And now Paul has backed Agrippa into a corner. What is he to say? If he says, no, I don't believe the prophets, the Jews will come unhinged. If he says, yes, I do believe in Moses and the prophets, he knows good and well what Paul just said is true. Jesus has perfectly fulfilled what was prophesied. But Festus just said, you'd have to be insane to believe this. So what's he to do? Well, he does what many politicians do. He just avoids the question. 
Verse 28, Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now, Agrippa's words are often misunderstood. He's not saying, I'm right on the edge of falling on my knees and becoming a Christian. What he is saying is that I am the great King Agrippa. And do you actually think you can convince me to convert to Christianity in such a short amount of time? He understands Paul is seeking to convert him. And he also understands he's backed into a corner. So he dodges the question. And he simply says, do you really think you could convince me? I'm not going to say I believe. I'm not going to say I don't believe. I'm just too great to make a decision like that in such a short amount of time. To which Paul replies, whether it takes a long time or a short time, I just wish you and all these people in this auditorium would become as me except for these chains. Now stop and think about this. The way Luke set up the scene is you have Agrippa and Bernice and Festus and anybody that's anybody in Caesarea is gathered and you have the power of Rome against this one small individual. But at the end of the story, what you don't have is Paul wishing he could become like them with all the power of Rome. He wishes they could all become like him. It's just a reminder of who we are as the people of God. We're on the victory side. We know who wins. We know who has the power. It's not a majority wins. It's the people of God who win. And Paul presents this to Agrippa. Verse 30, the king stood up and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So when the king stands up, that means trial over and everybody leaves. Agrippa, Bernice, uh, Festus, probably a few others gather in the corner and identify, I don't know anything that this guy's guilty of. Not only should he not be put to death, he shouldn't even have been imprisoned. As a matter of fact, if he hadn't appealed to Rome, we'd have just set him free. Now, some might see that as a strategic error on Paul's part. But number one, if he'd have gone back to Jerusalem, it's likely the Jews would have killed him in rout. That was the plan. But second of all, Paul's intent is not to be set free. 
Paul's intent is to have the opportunity to share the gospel with the most powerful man in the world. And he's headed to Rome to share the gospel with Nero. We'll pick up the story there next week. Just a couple of observations as we wrap this up. It is interesting to think about five trials with a clear message of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus. You have a long list of very powerful people who had everything to gain by disproving the claims of the gospel. If you could do that, you would have been a hero to the Jewish people. There was no better way to find favor with them than to have done this. The Jewish council itself had two years while he sat in prison. Present something that might convince someone that this didn't really happen. Yet, just 30 years after the event, no one could present anything that in any way discredited the claims of the gospel. This isn't a made-up story. There's names, there's places, there's people, there's events. Look it up in your history books. There was a Felix, there was a Festus, there was an Agrippa. All these places, all these people, they existed in history. Can easily be looked up and identified and validated. So 2,000 years later, you bump into somebody that says, what about this, what about that, what about this, what about that? Anybody can do that. But the reality is, 2,000 years later, not a single person has ever been able to come up with anything that seriously questions the historical claims of the gospel. So we should move forward with great confidence. What we believe is true. Second of all, you just can't miss the great power of Paul's story. Several times he says, this is, this is true. You can ask anybody. This is who I was. This is what I was doing. This is what happened to me. And this is how my life changed. What are they going to say? No, it didn't. Of course it's true. It's his story. And it reminds us of the power of your story. Most Christians are real uncomfortable with the thought of trying to share the gospel and have all the answers and people are going to raise objections and I won't know what to say. We often make this way more complicated than it needs to be. You have a story. Jesus has changed your life. Everywhere around us, there's people that are full of fear and despair. People have been rocked by the events of the last few years. Why am I not in despair? Why am I not controlled by fear? Why does it seem like I have a peace and a hope? This is my story. This is what Jesus has done for me. This is where I find my hope. 
This is what I believe to be true. We all have a story. And it's probably the most powerful thing you have to present to others about the hope of the gospel. And this we must do if we're going to dare to be the church. Our Father, we're thankful that the story of the gospel, the story upon which we place our eternal story, is true. Lord, for many of us in this room, you have radically changed us through the power of Jesus. Lord, may we share that story with others that they too might move from darkness to light, that they might know forgiveness of sin, that they might have hope in a culture of despair. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So I, I grew up in a home that knew a lot about Christianity. Um, you know, I think my parents did really well to keep me in the church and keep me around the church. Uh, But I think a lot of what I learned was just the rules of it and the traditions of it. And I think my parents had good intentions, but they were going through a lot of their own struggles in their marriage and raising four kids. So they, they weren't able to really, I think, guide me as much as they wanted to. So then I got to high school and all I knew is that I didn't feel good. I didn't like not feeling good. And I was gonna try to feel good. And so that was my main goal. And I wanted to get there however I could. And so kind of the first thing I did is, you know, I wanted to have a big group of friends because I thought if if I had a lot of people who liked me, a lot of people who accepted me, that I would feel loved, I'd feel wanted, you know, that I would no longer feel bad. And in my mind, I thought if I am the funniest, if I am the, the, the wildest, if I am the one doing the most of whatever we're doing, that I would gain their acceptance. And that ended up not being the case. You know, what I found out very quickly is that one, I felt really guilty about what I was doing. I didn't like lying to my parents. I didn't like the feeling of, of getting high, but I was doing it because I thought it would give me acceptance, but it did. Um, the, other, the other thing that I thought would work was if I had something cool, right? If I had something that other people wanted, if I had something that other people really thought was cool, that I would gain their acceptance. And the two things that kind of happened at the same time where I was pursuing that was a really cool car that I wanted. And I thought if I had a relationship like a girlfriend, that one, I'd, I'd have a girlfriend, which is I thought was cool, and I thought would, again, make me feel wanted, wanted and accepted. Um, and it worked. For, for a time, it, it achieved the goal I thought it would. People did notice me. People did like it. But um, both with the car and the girlfriend, they started to show what they really were. Uh, that car I had, it looked awesome, and it, it looked really cool. It was a mechanical nightmare. Uh, it was a flood car. So anytime I started it, there was 37 error codes. It had a, a horrible misfire. Um, a lot of times it wouldn't shift properly. You know, the people who wanted to drive in it no longer did because it was kind of scary to drive. You never knew if it actually gets you where you want to go. At the same time, when I was dating this girl, it was very exciting. It was very new. Um, and it was a sinful relationship. We were two very broken people looking for fulfillment and hope in each other. And as the time would go on, you know, that became, started to become more and more clear that, that that wasn't going to work. And the more I dated my girlfriend, 
the more I got scared because these are the last things that I could think of that the world had promised me would give me fulfillment, would give me joy. Um, about this time as well, my mom had really come to know Christ. She, she spent about two years, well, more than two years, praying for me daily um, and always trying to talk to me about God, trying to talk to me about the church, trying to invite me to be more active in it. And, you know, I had no interest in it. I was still hurt. I was really angry at the church because a lot of what I thought they had promised me never came to fruition. You know, my family wasn't good. I wasn't feeling good. So I was angry. But as time would go on, I became more desperate and more scared because everything I was trying was failing. Everything I wanted to, to feel that hurt wasn't working. And so she had invited me to come see the speaker at our church. I forget exactly what he said, but it was along the lines of um, that it's not, it's not too late. That whatever I had done, you know, God would still forgive me. And so what, what he was sharing with the gospel is that, is that that's, that's what Jesus came for. Um, that all that, that guilt, um, that shame that I had been burdened by is that Jesus came to, to take that away from me. When I was trying all these different things, when I was looking for just anything, something to, to take away my pain, to give me fulfillment and joy, is I was looking for Jesus, but I didn't realize it. That those things I was searching for, they were found in Jesus. And, and Jesus had it readily available. Jesus was not holding it back. He was just waiting for me to see it. He was waiting for me to ask for it. He was waiting for me to, to accept that gift he had given me. Looking back in that moment, I didn't fully understand what it meant to give my life to Christ. But what I understood is that I had tried so many things that didn't work. Um, and so that, that day I gave my life to Christ and that was October 11th of 2017. When I think about the difference of where I am now and where I have been these last few years to where I was in that high school, early college time, uh, life isn't magically easier. You know, I, I still have challenges. Um, there's still times where I feel inadequate and I, and I still want to go buy that car. You know, there was still, there was a lot of times in my early walk when even though I hated the feeling of, of the drugs or anything, there was times I still did want it because I felt, I felt bad again. But what's been awesome is that the gospel is true. And the good news has been that whenever, whenever I get those feelings, whenever I feel inadequate, whenever I get temptation, whenever I'm hurt, whenever any of the things that I used to feel, I don't have to search. You know, God, God is there. The, the gospel is real. It's, it's changed my life. It has really, really changed my life.